Welcome to the Book Mormon Central Come Follow Me podcast with your hosts, Lynn Wilson and John Cho. Shalom. <laughs> I'm totally into the Hebrew these days. I'm immersed in the Old Testament, loving every minute. This is one of my, I, I love this part of the Old Testament for lots of reasons we'll talk about of the, of the podcast here. But we left off with Jacob and Esau. But most of this is about Joseph. But let's start with Jacob and Esau. Yep, that's where we left off. Gen- yeah, Genesis, Genesis 32. 32. That's right. Great. So what's going on here with Jacob? He's he's meeting Esau. What's... So he's he's left um, his 20 years of servitude to his father-in-law, and he's taking his posterity and those that are coming with him, that work with them, returning to the land or the promised land of Canaan. And as they meet up with Esau, it is one of the most beautiful stories of reconciliation we have in Scripture that these hard feelings they left with someone wanting to kill his little brother or kill his twin brother, excuse (laughs) me, is now graciously accepting gifts. Well, he doesn't want to accept the gifts, but you know the story. I I just feel like it is such a beautiful story of the best that can come out of a hard time, and that Mm -hmm. is reconciliation. And of course, I see it as a type of Christ, that we can all be reconciled, that all of our past can be changed, that we have that potential to make life better. Yeah. I, I think about this too, because when we talked about this last time, we gave room for Esau that he just wasn't ready for the blessings, right? And there, there's some, obviously some poor choices made in there, but you sort of see the hand of the Lord and how Joseph, uh, Jacob wanted to bless him. Oh, sorry, sorry, definitely. And, Amen. And, you know, I have a brother. I understand sibling rivalry, <laughs> right? And, you know, to see it to come fruition, you know, and of course Jacob's humility in, in that I think is a big deal. Yeah, both of them. And and you have to also admire the way that both brothers continue, even though they're going to live far apart because they are they have a lot of people with them. You know, Esau comes right. with those 400. He's got a lot right, more people right. than that at home. You know, they both have these large tribes or chieftains of their tribes. But it's interesting to see that when their father passes away decades later, they both come to the burial. And I just assume that they also got together many other times, but the Bible only has two or three stories of them, and they choose to have both of these where they're together. I'm so glad they include that both Esau and Jacob come together to bury Isaac. Yeah. Well, let's go forward to 35 here. Oh, 35 is a great chapter, but do you want to skip over 34? Uh, I want to talk about 34 in one one light, because it's a difficult chapter with Dinah being taken, and it appears as if she is forced to marry in a clan that she doesn't want to, and that they have um, committed a fornication against her will, especially the will of her family. And I just want to emphasize something that this is one of the chapters in the Old Testament that shows us the value of women. Genesis has more women mentioned than any other book in the Old Testament. And look how these people are fighting for their sister. Now, we're told there are many other sisters in other accounts, which made me happy that there was not just one daughter born with all these 12 boys running around. (laughs) But I did a little bit of research on this. There's 177 named women in the Old Testament. There's 600 unnamed women in the Old Testament. And in Genesis, most of these 32 named women are righteous, good examples of disciples of Jesus Christ or disciples of Yahweh, whom they are striving to pattern their lives after. And I'm really impressed. Um, There's also 46 unnamed women in Genesis, but I hope as we go through the Old Testament 
that we can keep an eye out for that because I don't think it's necessarily a matter that there are not women in the Old Testament. It's that we maybe do not emphasize them enough because we don't understand the culture or whatever. It seems foreign. But I am just really impressed. I'm, it's tragic to see that there is premeditated murder by Levi and Simeon. But it is encouraging to me to see that they really were protective of their sister and that the law of chastity meant that much to them. Right. But so let's move on to Joseph. Let's, let's move on to Joseph. So 35, 35. Rachel, well, I guess Jacob goes to Bethel, right? Yeah. This is yeah. where he is. This is the beauty of returning to the covenant. And, you know, it's interesting because they, they come back to the promised land and he doesn't immediately go to Bethel. I don't know if you remember, but he told the Lord in before he even goes to Laban, to get married and all those experiences that he is going to have this, that he will come back and worship him there because this is where the Lord first appeared to him as he was fleeing Canaan under the threat that Esau was going to kill him. And now he's coming back and the Lord tells him to come back. And it sounds like he spends a few years in Shechem and that's when all these problems happen. So he's had all this devastation when he's returned to the promised land. His family has made some horrific choices. Right. You know, parenting adult children is far more difficult than sometimes we realize when we're worrying about diaper training and driver's training. But in this situation, um, he returns and has this beautiful experience where he asks somebody to purify themselves, get rid of your idols, get rid of your—take off your golden earrings. I want— all your fancies, you know, you've, too much of the world is upon you. You know, I think the imagery of you can buy anything in this world for money is a great imagery of the things that Satan is striving to implement in, in this people. And Jacob says, get rid of all of them. Take out everything. You know, we don't want anything that's materialistic driving your life. We want to become a pure people. We want to become unified as we go before the Lord to worship. And Bethel becomes a very sacred place. In fact, Later, you know, hundreds of years later in the book of Judges, Bethel is where the Ark and the Covenant is kept. Mm. Yeah. Before the temple is built, Bethel is one of those great places. Yeah. So this is a place where God renews his promise. It, right? The covenant is restored. Amen. Yeah. yeah. So, And it means house of God, right? Beth, right. house of. Yeah. Right, right. So I love this idea of, you know, just kind of connecting all the dots here, you know, Jacob's journey. And this is where he becomes Israel, right? He, he receives his name. Yeah, and I think it's the second time, actually, he's been told what his name is. Yeah. But, you know, I'm glad you brought that out, John, because Jacob, this surplanter or the heel grabber, you know, whatever, how we're going to translate this name, has plagued him his whole life. And now the Lord says, no, I've told you before what your new name is. I want you to think of yourself as one who will triumph with God. I want you to think of one who is going to conquer because you have the Lord with you. I want you to be a man of God. Yeah. It's a beautiful new name. It's a new start. It's a new start in a new country with a renewal of the covenant that was given to his father and his grandfather. That's right. So you mentioned it's not very easy, right? And this is probably one of the saddest parts. Yeah. Right. Where Rachel bears Benjamin. Oh. Right. So they leave Bethel and he's heading south I assume because the cattle uh, has the sheep, the goats, whatever, they've eaten all the grass in that area and or else their neighbors are mad at them, whatever. And so they start heading south and they get to the area near Bethlehem is what it is described as. And Rachel dies in, in childbirth. And again, we have another dynamic, empowered woman who is bearing a very important servant of God. But she passes on in the process, as many, many women did. I think from what anthropologists are suggesting now, childbirth and fires 
were the two greatest cause of death for women in their 20s to 50s, Mm. is what they've surmised. But she is one of those. And it appears to me that Joseph is about 12 years older. Joseph is about 12 years younger than Reuben because he's in Mesopotamia for 20 years and he has to work for seven years. Right. And then it takes about a year to have Reuben and then, or nine months, whatever. And then, um, and then of course, Joseph comes right before they leave. And then they've been 10 years in Shechem and then a, a year or two, you know, whatever it is, I don't know for sure, but it appears that they're uh, between 10 and 12, 20, 13 years apart, Joseph and Benjamin. And of course, Benjamin's the only child that Jacob names, Mm. Uh, you know, son of my right hand or son of my favorite or son of my, some people have even translated son of my favorite wife. As his wife dies in the childbearing, he receives that sweet name. But So all of this sets the stage for Joseph and his dreams and how Jacob feels about both Joseph and Benjamin. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Let's jump in. In fact, I think it even says in chapter 35 that Joseph is the favored son. Is that in verse Uh, 8? No, that's when Deborah dies. He receives this beautiful coat from his father. And it's translated here as coat, but I really appreciated looking at other translations to see, and going back to the Hebrew here, it's it's this cloak that goes to the ground. It's a coat of either many pieces or many shapes. And it's beautiful. It sometimes it's described as embroidered or a tunic or mm-hmm. something. But I think more than what it looks like is what it implies that mm. he is the birthright son. He is getting the honorary cloak. And it is the cloak that represents the priesthood. And in fact, I, I was reading the book of Jasher. I don't know if you've ever read any of these extra biblical sources, but they say the coat was the cloak, part of the cloak that was given to Adam. Now, I counted the generations back, and I don't know if it really was Adam's cloak, but (laughs) the idea that it would have represented what God covered Adam with Mm. is really interesting because even in, you know, the Old Testament is used by the Muslim and Islamic faith as well. Right. And they describe in their account of Joseph's coat that it had three marks on it and that these three marks were to represent God's love for him Mm. and that the the cloak also came from Adam. Part of it was not destroyed. A remnant was not destroyed. And then we look at the Book of Mormon and Alma says the same thing. I think it's uh, Alma 34. It says that just as part of the cloak of Joseph was not destroyed, just so a remnant of the people of Joseph were not destroyed. They were taken here to this new world and right, we've been saved. Right, right. So I I don't know. Maybe it was partially Adam or maybe it just represented that this was going to be the high priest. This was going to be, because there's no law of Moses yet. So we only right. have the higher law and Joseph would be worthy to receive the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right. Meaning that he would be able to enter into the presence of the Lord. But I sort of see this cloak as a temple text, a temple garment. Like what does Isaiah say about the beautiful are the garments? They that, oh, how beautiful are the garments of they? Anyway, it's this idea that right. Zion is filled with glory and that the garments of those who enter into the presence of the Lord will be glorified. And yeah. Joseph receives those blessings just like Jacob did. Yeah. So there's a new fame endemic here, which is a theme. Yeah. His older brothers don't like him, right? We talked about this over again. <laughs> yeah. So this is a theme. It's, it's not always the oldest, yeah. right? You know, 
No, it is not, especially it, in this Jacob case. Jacob relates to this very strongly, right? You know, it's interesting because so. Reuben, even though Jacob, I, I just feel like, no, he deserves the birthright because he is the oldest of the queen wife. Correct. So that's why I'm just sort of bristling when you said that. But the oldest really was Reuben. Right. But Reuben commits, he breaks the law of chastity. Right. And then Levi and Simeon, or the opposite order, excuse me, Simeon was the second. Simeon and Levi have premeditated murder. And then Judah breaks the law of chastity. Right. So they just aren't, they aren't worthy. Right. So th- I think that's a huge deal, right? Because you know, we see the scene in the Book of Mormon, right? At the very beginning. Yes. Right? And, and many times over. Oh, I'm glad you pointed that out. Um, yeah. And even the unrighteous who turn righteous, you know, both Almas, right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. The, the, there's that theme that really is, you know, linking, you know, through the stories and through, you know, the text itself that, Righteousness and the priesthood is required. Are yeah, required. And it just right? takes it's, us once again to section 121. No power or authority can yeah. or ought to be maintained unless yeah. it's on the principles of righteousness. That's right. So let's go through what happens with Joseph's dream. So it's interesting that the Lord gives these dreams so far in advance. I think that it was in part so that his brothers and his father and his mother may have been alive for part of this. I don't. I don't know. Um, when exactly the dreams came and when Benjamin was born. But I'm just fascinated with the fact that it's offensive on many fronts to say, I'm your little brother and you're going to bow down to me. But it also helps us realize God's foreknowledge. And as a disciple of Christ reading the Bible, I see it really helping me understand how the Lord can guide and direct each of our lives and that we have got to hold on to the promises made in blessings, whether those blessings are from our washings and anointings or our patriarchal blessings or our, our baby blessings, right. that these things can be fulfilled if we live worthy of fulfilling them. But that doesn't mean Joseph's going to have a good life. I mean, he has all these great <laughs> dreams, and then look what happens to him. You know, That's right. He's thrown into the pit. He's sold into slavery, sold to the Ishmaelites, sold to the Pharaoh. Um, Pharaoh puts him in prison, and but everywhere he goes, he always rises to the top. You know, I just love this example that bad things happen to good people, right. but good people make the best of bad things. Right. I just love that. Joseph has a terrible experiences, and yet— he is sensitive to the Spirit of God, and he honors his covenants and lives worthily so that other people can see his light. And even in the prison, he rises to be in a position of leadership. Right. I love the attitude. I, I just, I, I don't know how to explain it differently. Like, so, so there's so many scriptures, you know, that have wonderful stories that I draw inspiration from. But this one stands apart for me in just the faith and the consistency that Joseph has and then the forgiveness at the end of it all. Oh, it's just yes. Remarkable. Yeah. Anytime we can forgive someone who has wronged us, we are not only stepping in our Savior's example, but also in Joseph's example. Yeah. And I, I can't imagine what it'd be like to see, you know, Benjamin at the end. Right? Yeah. 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 You know, and then, of course, seeing his father again, you know, who, who was surprised. But, yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about the Egyptian era, though. You know, as yeah. he's placed in a position of authority. It's been a long time because we're told he's 30 years old okay. when he begins working as the viceroy. So he's 17 when he's sold into Egypt. That's right. And so he worked for Potiphar for a long time. And then, he, of course, he, he's in prison for at least a couple years before the pharaoh takes him out. But he's 30 years old, and he now has this opportunity to bless so many people. And I 
I love the additions in the Joseph Smith translation on all of this because the Lord adds more of the prophecies of Joseph at a time that Joseph Smith is translating this that refer to another descendant of Joseph who will be able to come, and he refers to Lehi and the Book of Mormon coming forth. And of course, Joseph has already translated the Book of Mormon. This would have been very exciting to see that the prophet of Joseph was knew that he would have the lineage of a remnant saved. Mm. But then, of course, Joseph of Egypt begins prophesying of Joseph of the latter days, of the prophet who's going to come at a time not when there is a famine necessarily of food, but a famine of understanding the Spirit of God. Right. And, of course, that's exactly what we see is Joseph is born. He's named after his father. And that part, of course, has been fulfilled when Joseph is doing this translation. But so much of the book of Genesis in these last 10 chapters that is added, you know, we've got about 20 extra verses or so added in the Joseph Smith translation, describe things that Joseph Smith has not yet accomplished. And yet, by the time of his passing... He has accomplished them. Mm. And it's just beautiful to see that fulfillment of another reason why we can say that Joseph of old was a seer and a prophet of God, and his descendant, Joseph Smith of Sharon, Vermont, was also a prophet of God (laughs) and fulfilled that prophecy there. I don't know why, but this section, you know, especially Joseph's story, just comes alive to me more. Oh, isn't it beautiful? Just about yeah. any other passage. Certainly, well, let's just look at some of the know. verses. You know, first of all, we get so much detail. But another thing that I think is so powerful is Joseph is such a beautiful type of Christ. Yes. And I think of all, it, these are great bedtime stories. They do come alive, but I don't think they're written for that reason. I think they're written so that we can see this type of Christ. But did we want to go over any of the historical stuff in Egypt at this I, time I first? I think so. Let's start there Before first, we do that. Okay. Because, this will just helps, go really fast, then we'll get to uh, Christ as a, as right, a type of Christ. Right. But it's really amazing to me to look at this Egyptian history and to look at these dynasties. And, you know, they have such great records. Once they were finally able, the Rosetta Stone was finally able to crack the Egyptian hieroglyphs. We have such great records of this Middle Kingdom. Um, from the period of about 1900 BCE or before the common era, before the Lord's birth, and about 1700 or 1500, there's these periods of time where the dynasties are taken over by foreign landlords. And we have a group that's come in called the Hykos dynasty, who are called the shepherd kings or the foreign kings who come in, reign for a hundred years of all of Egypt, but they reign in for portions of Egypt for much longer than that. A lot of people have suggested that that's where Joseph falls because he was also a foreigner. And so the foreign kings would accept him more. I don't want to spend our time guessing when that's going to happen, but we're really blessed, especially as we look ahead in the book of Exodus, to learn that from the time that Joseph arrives in Egypt until the Exodus— we have, you know, a 430-year period. And so by looking at the Egyptian dynasties during this time, it very well could have been during this Middle Kingdom and fit in. And when we talk about Exodus, we can talk more about that. But historically, everything seems to fit. When we look at the Bible as history, especially with the help of the second witness of the Book of Mormon and the restored scripture, the Bible fits in this. These stories of Joseph fit in history, but more so they fit in the typology, in the symbolism. You know, Second Nephi says we're supposed to look at the Old Testament for types of Christ. The whole law yeah. of Moses is to testify of Christ. And even though we're not in the law of Moses, we're still in this time period where we should look at, look for Christ. And I'd love to go through 
this period of Joseph's life, you know, starting even in like chapter 37 or something as, as types of Christ. I just, I got online and there's been several books written on this and we even see Joseph as a type of Christ a hundred times in these chapters. I just want to emphasize a few that I thought were just powerful. I don't know if you've got any that you just love, but I'm just going to start chronologically maybe and look at some of them because it's just beautiful. Each becomes a servant. Isn't that lovely? Just thinking about that. Can you well, to add on to that, it's someone who's designated to be in charge who yes. becomes a servant. Yeah. Right. So it's it's even harder. Which is counterintuitive. It's, it's right? counterintuitive. Yeah. But not only does Christ act as a little slave child when he washes the feet at the Last Supper, but repeatedly in that day and age, so much of the work that Christ did was the job of a servant. All the healing was a job of a servant. And repeatedly in all four Gospels, we have phrases coming from the Lord's mouth, such as, I came not to be served, but to serve. Right. I really feel if we want to walk where Jesus walked, more than going to Jerusalem, we need to learn how to serve one another. And he Sometimes it's translated, I came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And I just feel like if we want to walk where Jesus walked, we will magnify our callings as ministers. That is what Christ did. He came to minister. Yeah, I, I think of Joseph's miracles, you know, in prison. It's it's yes. an act of service. You know, yes. he, the butler, you know. And, uh-huh. and, 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 the, and the baker, and yeah. The dream, yeah. Yeah, the butler and the baker. Yeah. And so that, that act of service and, and helping spare his life. Uh, and, and he's of course, serving the head of the prison as well as Pharaoh, I right. mean, as well as Potiphar and, right. and Pharaoh right. both. Of course, yeah. Pot, you know, yeah, to rewind that, you know, serving Potiphar himself, right? And even when, you know, he's brought out of prison and, and he saves Egypt and by extension, you know, his family. Yeah. That's all an act of service, right? You know, here's what I can do for the kingdom. It is. And he's providing food for them. It's all, you know, it's beautiful. Look at Genesis 39 verses 2 and 4. His service pleased his master. And isn't that beautiful looking at it as our Savior? What's that verse where he says, I do only those things that please my father? Yeah. I love it. I guess we also see it in, in Isaiah, don't we? With the suffering servant who's pleasing his master he taking the bitter cup. Right. Everything. Um, oh, God, where art thou? You know, he's doing everything, but thy will be done. Everything is to please his master. Both were tempted. Let's go back to Potiphar's wife. Right. Both are tempted, but they do not sin. And I assume that, you know, in all four Gospels, we get Jesus's temptations, and it just seems like, oh, he conquers so magnificently. But I am sure there were times when it was not as easy like Gethsemane that we just referred to. Right. Where he is tempted, but he did not ever take anything from Satan's bidding. Just a perfect example there. Each are falsely accused. Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph. His brothers accuse him. Anybody else accuse him? And of course, Christ before Pilate, before Ananias, even way before that, the Everybody accuses him to be a servant of the of Beelzebub, right. a servant of the devil. You know, they accuse him well before his last few days of his life. Anybody else you can think I, of? I think, well, it's not so much who else, but it's why they're being oh, accused. Tell me more about that. So just going back to, to the beginning of Joseph, yeah. you know, he's favored, it's 37, right? Yeah. At the very beginning, you know, Jacob loved him. And and I can see why, you know, his he sees his wife, right? And these are his... Yeah. These two boys and, you know, the, the others still have their mothers, right? They yeah. don't. And so I see this. 
jealousy that, that comes up. And of course, uh-huh. this designation with uh-huh. the coat we all talked about earlier. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. It's always selfishness at the root, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Jealousy is born of self-centeredness. Which is odd considering we, we first talked about service, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. So if I imagine a different history in like where, okay, I'm really annoyed by my little brother, which is, you know, everyone can relate to who has one. <laughs> but that's different than let's kill him now, you know, let's, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or, or yes, yes, which yes. happens to both Christ and, yeah. and Joseph here, that, you know, these people, both brothers they, they come to serve, him. they come to serve, they come to improve the lot of their family, right? Uh, and, and Christ. They, and they both want to be killed. And, yeah. and, and people want to kill him for it, for, for some odd reason, just really born out of jealousy. And I, I don't quite wrap my mind around that. I, I think in a distance, I can understand that. But I think it's also, there's so many more before the killing, though, because each, I'm, I'm looking at Genesis 39, verse 20, each are innocent, and they're both cast into prison. Mm. You know, Christ is in prison when he's whipped. Each one respect of his guards. You remember there's the high priest, uh, the servant of the high priest who Peter cuts off his ear. Right. And he puts it back on, and he, and then again at the tomb, I mean, at the at the cross. Right, with the centurion. So each is yeah. winning respect of their guards. Each is numbered with the transgressors. You've already talked about the baker and the in prison, and also the the guard in the prison. But they're numbered with the transgressors. He's right there amongst all of them, just as our Savior was with, on on the cross. And with the the people who least deserve it, right? This is not yes. some punishment that's exacerbated, yes. right? Yes. That they, they have you know no none wrong. of us have anything to complain about. I just look at all of our <laughs> petty, petty, petty gripes about anything you know i get that sense too when i read these stories i'm like i have no just let's humble ourselves and (laughs) repent shall we yeah i love the fact that joseph is in his dreams is giving prophecy he often is prophesying but he always gives credit to god and we see the same thing of course with our savior everything he does i am doing nothing but i've seen my father do right he's constantly giving credit to his father but one of my favorites, going back to that prison imagery of the butler and the baker, mm-hmm. is, um, do you remember when Joseph asks the cupbearer, because one's going to be killed, you know, but the cut, the man who's going to carry the, the cup to the king, the pharaoh, he says, would you please remember him? Right. And our Savior asks us to remember him by the cup as well. So there's this beautiful underlying image of the cupbearer, that Christ is the one who bears the bitter cup. And Joseph asks the cupbearer to remember him. That one is is a beautiful, deep I love one. That one. That's Genesis forty, verse fourteen, and Luke chapter twenty-two, verse nineteen. But we could just keep going on and on and on. Yeah, let's keep going. Okay, Genesis forty-one, verse thirty-three. Turn the page. They're each giving very wise counsel. When did the Savior give wise counsel? (laughs) (laughs) When did he not give wise counsel? You know, let's just start with Sermon on the Mount, shall we? Actually, let's start even before that, the wedding of Cana. Yeah. To fill the water pots all the way full and then add his influence to make, I, I always see that. I mean, it's one of his names, right? Wonderful yeah. and counselor. Oh, terrific. Right? Yes. Perfect. Genesis, uh, going down to verse 39. I'm still in 41. Genesis 41, verse 39 to 40. He's exalted over all and they bow down before him. Now, I guess that's in the future of the Savior. When is, I guess. I mean, there's the, the entrance to the city. Yes, right. thank you, of course. The triumphal entry. Yes, right. yes. And then Peter prophesies that it will happen, and Paul prophesies that it will happen, that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Right. As does the book of Revelation, John the Beloved's prophecies there, that we will all bow before him. I thought it was interesting in Genesis 41, if you go down to verse 45, 
he's referred to as the savior of the world. And at the time of our savior, the person who used the title of the savior of the world was Caesar Augustus because he stopped the civil wars. And so we see these kings juxtaposition to the real savior of the entire world rather than their known world. And he becomes not only the savior temporally, but the redeemer of us, to redeem us from our sins, to buy us back. I really feel like it's healthy to read these texts of people in slavery to understand our relationship to our Savior who will buy us out of slavery, that we are enslaved to our sins, that we are prisoners, that we need to be bought back. We have to be redeemed with money. I just feel like in my world, I don't live in a world of slavery. It's hard to imagine some of this, how important that would feel to be redeemed as yeah. a as a prisoner. I'm sure you already caught this one, but um, they both started their ministry at age 30. That's Genesis 40, verse 46. They both started age 30 in their ministry. And, and I, I always have a hard time saying Christ didn't start till then, because of course he started well before then. But that's what Luke says. And actually, that's the only exact date we have in the New Testament. Luke says it was the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. So we've got an exact date to help us plan things in the calendar. Not that that's important, but it's helpful to know that he began. And also, remember, once the law of Moses comes to pass, it's your 30th year that you can start working as a priest in the temple, but you don't start until then. If you're a Levite, you can start at 25. But if you're going to be a priest, you don't start until you're 30. They, they claimed 30 was the year of authority. You claimed authority by age 30. You know, you're an adult at the time of the New Testament at 12 and a half in one day. You can get married, you can do all sorts of things, but you don't have authority to act as a priest until your 30th birthday, which is interesting that both of these are on their 30th day. Just continuing on in the Joseph story, they both feed the hungry, don't they? Yeah, that's that's interesting with the large groups of people in a miraculous way. Miraculous right? way. Large groups of people. That's Genesis 41, 55 to 56. And then again in Genesis 43, you know, they he just keeps feeding him, feeding him, right. feeding him. He's feeding his brother. He's feeding the hungry. And then we have the all four Gospels. That's I think there is only one miracle that all four Gospels share, and it is the feeding of the 5,000 because it is was such an important prophecy that he had to fulfill. And it's just 5,000 plus, 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 Matthew tells us. And then, of course, there's also the feeding of the 4,000. You know, so it's it's plus, plus, plus. And, of course, he is the bread of life. That's the whole point. He doesn't want us to follow him for for the manna or the grain. He wants us to follow him because he is the source of the bread of life. I love this part that his brothers don't recognize him, but he knows who his brothers are in 42.7. That's right. He knows who they are. And after a period, his brothers do feel remorse. That's right. So they see Genesis what it, 42, 21 talks about that. But yeah. if we look at Matthew 27, we have people feeling remorse yeah. for our saviors as well. The other one that is interesting, the first time the brothers come down, Joseph doesn't tell them who he is. That's right. But he reveals his brothers at his second coming. And when Christ comes, he tells them a few times, I'm the Messiah. At least he tells the woman at the well in right. John 4. He tells other people, but it is not known until his second coming. And that's beautiful here. Yeah. To see that. He suffered to fulfill God's plans. Jacob suffered a lot. I kept thinking of the 17-year-old boy being, being stripped of your clothes and thrown into a pit. You know, I'm a, if it were me, I would have broken some bones. I, you know, I, I just thought, and that wasn't the beginning of his suffering. 
So um, we certainly have Joseph's example there, but it was all to fulfill God's plan. And I look at our own lives and the plan of salvation. The plan of salvation is that we will learn from our own experiences. You know, we're supposed to have the thorns and the thistles and the pain at the childbirth. We're supposed to have these things. And yet it's all to fulfill God's plan for us to learn and grow. It's just beautiful, isn't it? Just it's amazing. Yeah, I think it's not just it's there's two parts of it because there's the physical part, which, of course, Christ and Joseph both went through. But it's who was doing the betraying was especially painful, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I'm not sure. I mean, Joseph, I had this vision of Joseph kind of wanting to win the approval of his brothers. He's he's kind of running out there to tell his brothers, you know, on the errand of his father. Yeah, yeah. Right, here's what's happening, and, and they throw him in a pit. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, you know, go on from there. And I see the same things with, with the Savior, right? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it helps me understand more about my God's greatness, and it helps me understand more about his mercy and his compassion but the intricacy of his plan, I see it like this tapestry that is as beautiful on the front side as it is on the back side. And the threads in which it's interwoven are exquisite. As you look at these details, how everything fits. His first announcement was not believed, but the second announcement was. That's Luke 24. He saves Israel, or all who come unto him. And then Acts chapter 13, he will save all who come unto them, yeah. whether it's in this life or the next, you know, uh, just powerful messages. Do you see any more? Well, there's a little connection to Egypt. I'm not sure that's spiritually significant. Oh, but, of course it is. Of course uh, it is. <laughs> Keep going. What's know, the so, Egypt? So, uh, of course, the Savior and his family virtually raised in Egypt, right? Well, it doesn't sound like it was very long because we have the dates of the kings. So right. as soon as one king is dead... They, they're able to go back. So he does go down. And you don't have to go down very far to be in Egypt at that time. The border was halfway down the Dead Sea at that time in the Roman Empire. But the image of Christ coming to Egypt and coming out of Egypt yeah. because he's going to be killed and working as a servant is just, just beautiful. And I also love the image of Egypt as the world, as we talked about before, that both are with their fathers and then have to be sold into Egypt or come down right. into the world. Yeah. yeah. Right. There's, there's that connection. But with... Jesus as a child is a great, great example yeah. on that one. Yeah. I love it. I feel like Nephi's quote, for this end hath the law been given. This is the reason why it was in mm. place so that we would be able to typify of Christ. It's just beautiful. I hope in all of our readings, we can see Christ and in all of our lives, others can see Christ that we can likewise take on the role of a servant as needed and take on the role of one who can forgive as needed and take on the role of one who will provide food for those in need. Yeah. It's just a powerful story. I love Joseph. And for those of us in the latter days, the very ending, I just would love to touch for just a minute on some of these prophecies that are given in the Joseph Smith translation, the very end where we have, you know, 20 verses of these last two chapters that all talk about the second coming, in preparation for the second coming. And Joseph's prophecies are powerful. And even though we don't have them in Genesis, we do have them in the Joseph Smith translation, starting about in chapter 50, is the ones where I'd like to start, but there's a whole bunch more even before that in, in 48 and that are beautiful. But I just want to talk about some of these. The God of your father's Jacob, this is all added in the Joseph Smith translation, verse 24. 
The God of my father Jacob be with you to deliver you out of affliction in the days of your bondage. For the Lord has visited me, and I have obtained a promise of the Lord that out of the fruit of my loins, the Lord will raise up a righteous branch. And he not only prophesies of Moses, but he also prophesies of Joseph, the prophet of the restoration. Right. And he, he admits the Messiah will not come through my loins in this verse. I'll, I'll keep reading. Not the Messiah who is called Shiloh. That is saved for Judah. It is out of Judah's loins. And this beautiful patriarchal blessing that Jacob gives to his 12 sons have so many more images of our Savior. And the image that I think C.S. Lewis uses in the Narnia tales of, mm. of Aslan as a lion, I think comes out of this patriarchal blessing that the lion of the Lord is going to come forth. Judah is the lion of the Lord and this the scepter will not pass. You know, So in the patriarchal blessings of Israel to his sons, and that's when he takes Joseph's two sons and puts them in the place of one place for Joseph. And again, it's interesting that Ephraim, is given the blessing of the firstborn, even though he is the secondborn. And again, and right. Manasseh as the second. And Levi will not receive property. He's going to be the priesthood. And so he will receive his food from the offerings at the temple. So Levi is taken out and Manasseh is put in and Ephraim is in the place of Joseph. So in the loins of the 12 tribes, we usually refer to Jacob receiving his double portion as the firstborn with those two. And then we have these beautiful prophecies of the time when another Joseph will be raised up and he will be able to restore in preparation for the second coming. And that is our calling now to yeah. be like Joseph. And it is a wonderful, powerful, empowering calling. Yeah. I want to end with, you know, two scriptures that set it to me at the very end in Genesis 50. Great. And this is verse 20 and 21, okay. right? So you've already mentioned this, but this is when he's revealed at the second second time, right? right? Okay. And so they all reveal, and, you know, they fall on their knees. And I read these because I'm like, these are words that could literally just come out of the mouth of the Savior and this, you know, instead of Joseph. So in 20 it says, but as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it into good to bring to pass as to this day to save much people alive. Now, therefore, fear ye not, I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. Right. Oh, so I can't I'm see. I'm so glad. What a, a type of Christ. Type of Christ and just those, oh, those words. Great way to end the book of Genesis. Yeah. Love that we can verses. all become instruments of Christ is our greatest desire. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you.